Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today is Palm Sunday, and we continue our Lenten sermon series, Easter in the First Person. How did the events of Holy Week and Easter look like to those who were there? Today we hear the story of the high priest Caiaphas, the man who ordered Jesus' arrest. Join us now for the message, Caiaphas, this Jesus must die. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. As the song, <clears throat> as the song says, what if God was one of us? Would we even recognize him? Well, we'll be exploring that a little bit later in our service. We have three scripture readings this morning coming from three different gospels. The first is from Mark chapter 11 starting at the first verse. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say this, The Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here immediately. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. From the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, beginning in the 45th verse. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. And from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, beginning in the 45th verse. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, What are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but to gather into one so the dispersed children of God. So from that day, they planned to put him to death. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who knew where Jesus was should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of God for the people of God. I thought we had taken care of this problem. 
Usually when we have one of these would-be messiahs executed, the rest of his followers just scatter like cockroaches and we never hear from them again. But yesterday, two of his disciples were brought before the council. Now we had their leader crucified months ago, but these guys are still at it. Now they're actually claiming that their leader rose from the dead three days after he died. I mean, it's pathetic, but I do have to admit, I am a little impressed with the way they've been able to keep up this charade for so long. Well, my name is Joseph Caiaphas, and I've been serving as high priest in the great temple in Jerusalem for 15 years now. I succeeded my father-in-law, Annas, who spent nine years in the position. So that's 24 years now that the office of high priest has been in our family, and we take this responsibility very seriously. And a large part of that responsibility is serving as the head of the Sanhedrin, that is the ruling council of the Jews. We represent the highest governmental body overseeing both the political life of Jerusalem and Judea and the religious lives of all Jews. We number 71, and the Sanhedrin is composed of men from all the leading families of Jerusalem, including the chief priests and Sadducees, scribes, and, and even a few Pharisees. Well, I say we're the highest governmental body, but we never forget that it is really Rome who rules. Both my father-in-law, Annas, and I were appointed to the position of high priest by the Roman prefect or governor, and right now that's a guy named Pontius Pilate. In order to keep this post, it's necessary for us to work very closely with Pilate and his administrators. Now, they more or less let us run the affairs of Judea and the temple without much interference because, you see, the Romans are really only interested in two things, keeping the peace and collecting the taxes. And as long as we take care of those two things, they pretty much let us run things. But if we fail in those two things, they will not hesitate to step in and to take, to con take control by whatever means they think is necessary. And they never let us forget this. The Sanhedrin meets in a room that's right off the main court in the temple. And every time we meet, or really just any time we, we walk through the various courtyards, we always see that Antonia fortress rising up there over the northwest quadrant of the temple complex. And that's where the main garrison of Roman soldiers is housed. And that's where they stand, at the ready, to swoop down in the temple if they perceive even a moment any kind of disturbance taking place. We of the Sanhedrin must always play this, this never-ending balancing act, placating Pontius Pilate and the Romans on the one hand, while governing a fiercely independent people who are deeply resentful toward the presence of those Romans on the other hand. For example, uh, in the beginning, one of the biggest issues between Jews and Romans was the refusal of Jews to make sacrifices to Caesar as a god. Now, all the other peoples that the Romans had conquered had just added Caesar to their long list of pagan gods that they honored. Now, they might resent having to make these sacrifices, but if you're a pagan, I mean, what's one more god to honor? But you can imagine how this went over with us Jews. You see, worshiping the Lord our God alone is our most sacred law. 
There were riots and uprisings, and finally cooler heads on both sides prevailed, and we came to a compromise. The Jews did not have to make sacrifices to Caesar if we agreed to make sacrifices to the Lord on behalf of Caesar and to pray to the Lord for his well-being. Well, that we could do. But having to continually navigate these issues and maintain this balance, it's exhausting. We live in a perpetual state of anxiety because ultimately Rome holds all the cards. If there's a conflict or an outbreak of any kind of rebellion, it's going to be the Jews that get slaughtered. So for this reason, the Sanhedrin is on constant lookout for rebels and troublemakers. We try to get ahead of every situation that we think might lead to violence or to further crackdown. Now people criticize us. We get a lot of criticism for just being interested in maintaining the status quo. Well, yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to do because when the status quo is threatened, it's the Jews who will die. And so that's why we have to deal with insurrectionists and false messiahs as swiftly as we possibly can. And that was no different for this latest messiah candidate, this Galilean known as Jesus of Nazareth. You know, if he had just stayed in Galilee, being a harmless itinerant teacher, we would have left him alone. Now, some of the Pharisees from Galilee didn't think he was so harmless, but that's Galilee's problem. The mistake that Jesus made was he decided to come to Jerusalem and make trouble. Then he became our problem. This fellow Jesus had been traveling through Galilee for the last few years, teaching and gaining followers and supposedly performing miracles. He and his disciples would come to Jerusalem for the three big Jewish celebrations we had each year. Jesus would come to the temple, he would teach some, he would argue with a few of my colleagues, but it never caused any real trouble, and when the festival was over, they all went home. But not this last year. As his popularity grew, his visits to Jerusalem just became more and more unruly. The crowds that followed him just got larger and larger, and he started to really challenge some of the priests and scribes in the temple. Some in the Sanhedrin were getting increasingly outraged at some of the things that he was saying. Now, for a while, I chalked this all up to the fact that some of my more pompous colleagues, they just didn't like getting bested by this peasant Galilean. But on this last Passover, he crossed way over the line. And then I became the one that was outraged. It all started the Sunday before Passover. Now, first of all, you need to understand what it's like in Jerusalem during the Passover. Not only do Jewish pilgrims stream in from all over Judea and Galilee, but diaspora Jews come in from all the corners of the world. Now, one of the few things I can say positive about the Romans is this. Because they maintain such a tight military grip over the whole Mediterranean world, and they build the best roads that the world has ever seen, then travel throughout the Roman Empire is made possible. And so that's how Jews can live anywhere in the empire and still make it to Jerusalem to celebrate our festivals. But as a result, during our festivals, Jerusalem becomes hot and filthy and overcrowded. 
Add to that the constant presence of Roman soldiers and tempers can flare, emotions run high. Everybody, both Jew and Roman, is on edge. I tell you, there have been many times when I've watched the Roman soldiers enter the temple courtyard and subdue someone who was disturbing the peace. They are not subtle. They crack heads, they make arrests, and they ask questions later. And sometimes people die. So it is into this context that Jesus thinks it's a good idea to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and let the people adulate him like he was some sort of king. They laid down their cloaks in the road, they cut palm branches, they laid those down, and then the people started shouting things like, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Well, I don't know, maybe this guy was a descendant of David, but so what? There are thousands and thousands, literally thousands of Jews who can trace their lineage back to David. It's really no big deal. And frankly, what he was trying to do was actually pretty transparent. He was trying to invoke what had been written by the prophet Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey. He was actually encouraging the people to pretend he was some sort of king. Do you have any idea how dangerous that is? Any pretensions to being a king is just inviting Rome's wrath. Some of the Pharisees tried to get him to stop, but he wouldn't listen. They later described it as if the whole world had gone after him. But as if this triumphal entry wasn't bad enough, it got worse from there. After he entered the city, he got down from his donkey, he entered the main courtyard of the temple. He then proceeded to go over to where the sacrificial animals were being sold. And then this guy became unglued. This Jesus started to drive out the animals being sold for sacrifice. Afterwards, we had sheep running loose all over Jerusalem. All the doves flew away. He then went and he kicked over the chairs where the sellers had been sitting before then going over to the money changers and flipping over their tables. I tell you, coins went everywhere. I've never seen so many people dive for the pavement. Um, they got away with a lot that day. And then he started shouting like this madman. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? <laughs> Please. Actually, at this point, I was starting to take this personally. You see, my family has a financial interest in the business that goes on in the temple. Do we make money, a modest profit off each transaction? Yes but we provide vital services. You see, every Jew who comes to the temple is required to pay a temple tax. How else do you think we pay for the maintenance around here? But it would be completely inappropriate, blasphemous even, to pay the temple tax with Gentile money. So, any, you see, any Gentile money is going to have the image of one of their pagan gods stamped into the coins. And that's a violation of our second most sacred law. We don't worship graven images. 
How then can you pay the temple tax with a graven image? So we provide money changers who convert the Gentile money into Jewish money. That way the people can pay their temple tax without committing blasphemy. And as for the animals, unless you live in the uh, direct vicinity of Jerusalem, it's totally unrealistic to expect worshipers to travel from all corners of the world with the animals they're going to need for sacrifice. It's much more convenient for the worshipers to be able to purchase these animals here at the temple. We're providing services that the people really need. In fact, it's my duty as high priest to make sure the temple tax is paid and the right sacrifices are made. Now, I wouldn't be a very good priest, would I, if I didn't aid the people in the proper worship of God? Well, frankly, I'm shocked that day that the Roman soldiers didn't come running in and start making arrests as soon as Jesus started flipping over those tables. I mean, by performing these actions, Jesus was practically begging to get arrested. All I can think of is that the animal sellers and the money changers are on the exact opposite corner as the Antonia Fortress. I think it was really some kind of miracle that the Roman soldiers didn't see this melee. What I actually found more disturbing is that our own temple police seemed nowhere to be found, but they later made up for their oversight by going and arresting Jesus. You see, each day after that, it was just more of the same, though he didn't turn over all the tables again. Jesus came to the temple every day and made some sort of scene. Every day, larger and larger crowds of gullible people came, and they hung on his every word. He would get them all riled up and emotional, and the situation was just becoming more and more dangerous. We really had no choice but to act. If we didn't end this, there was going to be riots next, and then there would be a bloodbath in the temple. The chief priests and I, along with the other members of the Sanhedrin, we began to look into having Jesus arrested. But we couldn't have him arrested in the temple because that in itself would provoke a riot. We needed to know where Jesus was staying so we could go and have him arrested away from the crowds. We caught a break when one of his closest disciples came to some of the priests and offered to assist in the arrest. Thursday night, that would be the night of Passover, this fellow named Judas would come and get the temple police and lead them to Jesus. Now, the police would not know Jesus by sight, so Judas said uh, that he would indicate which man Judas, or excuse me, Jesus was by going up and greeting him with a kiss. Now, I have no idea what motivated this man to betray his teacher. I like to think he began to see just how dangerous Jesus was becoming. We paid him a good 30 pieces of silver for his assistance. You know, I heard later that he came back and tried to return the money, that he now regretted his actions. And when the priest wouldn't take it back, Judas threw that money on the floor and he left. I heard that later he actually went and he hung himself, which just goes to show how crazy these followers of these false messiahs can be. Well, we took the money and we purchased a field where now foreigners could be buried if they happened to die in Jerusalem. So it ended up the money going to a good cause. And so even despite his regret, Judas did a real service for the people. Well, like I said, the temple police went and they arrested Jesus that Thursday night and they took him back to the house that I share with my father-in-law. 
And during the chaos of that arrest, one of his disciples took a sword and actually cut off the ear of one of my servants. They tried to arrest him too, but he ran off into the darkness. We questioned Jesus late into the night. We decided to get some rest and then take Jesus to Pilate early in the morning. We concluded that Jesus was just so dangerous that we would try to get him executed as soon as possible. The city was still swollen with people because of Passover. And if we didn't get him executed the next day on Friday, we'd have to wait until after the Sabbath. And we figured that the sooner we got this unpleasant business over with, then the sooner we could get the people pacified. Pilate, too, was also very deeply concerned about a riot developing, so he agreed to have Jesus executed by crucifixion. Now, it is a very unfortunate method of execution, but for the Romans, this is their standard method for any peasant who is convicted of sedition. And sedition actually ended up being the official charge. Now, we of the Sanhedrin were chagrined that Pilate had the moniker King of the Jews written on a sign over his head, but at least Jesus would soon be gone. One last would-be Messiah to lure the people into false hope. Now, I would like to see the Romans gone as much as the next man, but we have to face facts. Rome's in charge. And because of that, we have to play by Rome's rules. Well, as I said in the beginning, it was close to three months later that two of his disciples came before the Sanhedrin. Some people claimed that they saw them heal one of the cripples that usually begs outside one of the temple gates. Why do all the crazy ones come to the temple? As we were assessing the situation, we learned that instead of melting back into the woodwork, like all the other disciples of all these other messiahs that we had executed, these followers of Jesus were actually growing in number. They were claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead, and people were actually buying into the story. It's like, we tried to kill him, but he just wouldn't stay dead. Well, when the two disciples appeared before the Sanhedrin, there really wasn't much we could do, because the whole reason we had Jesus killed was to prevent a riot. And now the people were so enamored that one of them had healed this guy in the temple that if we punished them, there might still be a riot that we had to deal with. So we ordered them to stop preaching about this Jesus, but I have a feeling they're not going to do that, which is really too bad. We as the ruling council, we've just done everything we know how to do to keep the people safe from the further oppression by the Romans. And while that follower who betrayed Jesus might have had his regrets, I certainly do not. Having Jesus and all these other false messiahs executed, it's just the right thing to do. As I think back, I remember when some of us were, were there kind of uh, there at the temple, we were meeting and trying to find a way to stop Jesus. And one of the other priests was just wringing his hands and saying, what are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If he let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. Well, at that point, I just got so exasperated that I said, you know nothing at all. Do you not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed? I mean, it's true. 
Having one man die is better than having a multitude perish. And so if you think about it, Jesus kind of died for the people. Jesus didn't even die just for the Jews. He died for the Romans too. Because surely one of them or several of them might have been injured or killed while they tried to quell the riot. You know, in a year, no one's going to remember this guy. So in a way, this gives this guy Jesus' death some sort of meaning. Otherwise, he would be just another Galilean peasant who lived and died in obscurity. In a way, by dying, Jesus had given his life to save the people. He had taught them to no longer put their faith into these false military messiahs who promised to drive out the Romans because we must face facts. The Romans are unbeatable. At this point, I think the only way the people will ever be free is if God intervenes, if somehow God would make his presence known. Wouldn't that be great if God showed up? I hope I'm there to see it. Amen. And so now, let us, with the confidence that we have as the children of God, let us pray the prayer that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Remember that you can always find recordings of our service on our uh, Facebook page, on our website, tumcd.org, or through our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. Now, your action items for this week. Continue to pray for Trinity. That's always going to be one of your action items. Continue with your Lenten discipline during this holy week and be on the lookout for all the ways that God shows up, even when it is most subtle. And now receive this benediction. Sisters and brothers, truly this man was the Son of God. Just as Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem, let us disperse out into the world, going out in humility going out in peace, ready to serve and ready to give our lives. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed and were blessed by today's service. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday, and we'll continue our sermon series, Easter in the First Person, with the story of Mary Magdalene who found an empty tomb that first Easter morning. You'll find recordings of all our services on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. Remember that we're now worshiping both in person in our sanctuary as well as online. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church. Mm-hmm.